Let's open up our Bibles. Woo! I'm afraid now. <laughs> Let's open up our Bibles. Revelation chapter 5. That's where we'll be uh, this evening as we continue working our way uh, through the book of Revelation. So we'll pick it up. Revelation 5, chapter 5, verse 1. says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for the opportunity we have to open the scripture tonight, Lord God, and continue our study uh, through this incredible book. Lord, I pray, God, that by your spirit you would give us eyes to see and and ears to hear. God, that you would uh, just prepare our hearts that the seed of your word might uh, take take a root and grow and bring forth fruit in our lives. Lord, we ask that you would uh, just bless this time as we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so remember, it's been a couple of weeks, but when we were on uh, Revelation chapter 4, we got a uh, glimpse of the throne room in heaven. Now, one of the exciting studies that you can do in, in just comprehending the, the beauty and the majesty of the throne of God is to recognize it correlates with the tabernacle. You guys remember the tabernacle? So just think together with me. When Moses went on on top of Mount Sinai and received the law, he was also given at that time blueprints. God gave to him the, the measurements and the implements for the tabernacle. It's interesting that God did that because... When we look at the giving of the law, not only did God give that, but he also gave men what to do when they break it, which was kind of important in the time of Moses, right? How long did it take the children of Israel to break the law? He didn't even get down the mountain, did he? Right? He's in the middle of talking with God, and God says, you're going to need to go down there. The the knuckleheads are at it again, right? So when God gave the law, he also gave the sacrificial system. Wrapped up in the tabernacle. And in the, in the tabernacle, if you do a study, we're not going to do it tonight, but I just want to encourage you, do a, do a study of the tabernacle, the measurements, the description of how things were made, and, and understand that every one of those things in the tabernacle, the, the menorah, we, you've heard me talk about the menorah before, right? The vine and the branches, and the fact that he is the light, that's the only light in the tabernacle. Or you have the table of showbread where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Or you have the the altar of incense where Jesus ever lives to make inter, 
session for us. You have the Ark of the Covenant. The scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is our hilasterion, the, the mercy seat, the covering for the Ark. And what went in the Ark? The failures of men, right? The brokenness of mankind, the, the, the things that, that he failed in. And what stops judgment is the mercy seat, right? Covering. And where's the blood applied? On the mercy seat. So when we look at Jesus Christ and his, and the picture fulfilled, when we see the throne room of heaven in Revelation chapter 4, it's the, it is what the tabernacle was built to represent. The throne room of God. The laver, the bronze laver, the, all the pieces are there described for us in the in the the scene as we look at the one who sits on the throne we see in chapter four this uh, emphasis is on the father god the father the the description of everything that we see in chapter four but when we come to chapter five we're introduced to something that's going on in that place and another another part another uh another person uh, is going to be described in chapter 5. That's the lamb, or the lion, or the son. That's God in the flesh, the only one who is worthy to take the scroll. So when we look at it, we want to see that. Look what he says in verse 1. He says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on a throne, that's the Father, I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on a throne, a scroll written within... And on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now you guys, all we probably have a, a variety of, of pictures in our mind of a scroll, right? What a, what a scroll looked like. And when we look at this description, the word, the Greek word is biblion. It's the same one, it's the same exact word used in Daniel. In Daniel, remember when Daniel's writing a book, what does God tell him to do with the book? He says, Daniel, do what? Seal this book. For it is for the time of the end. Seal it. There's not going to be the, the understanding. It's for a future time. Daniel, it's for a future time. Same word, Biblion. Biblion. Same word is used of the scroll of Isaiah. That we, If you came with us to Israel, we went to the, to the um, what do they call it? I lost it. The place of the book. It's not called the place of the book, though. What? Yeah, no, nah, there's a name of the, and it doesn't matter. The museum, it's not the museum either. Yeah, you guys are never going to get it. <laughs> it's floating around in my head, though. When I, when I remember, it's, it doesn't make any difference. It's a place where they keep the scroll of Isaiah. And the scroll of Isaiah is called the Biblion, the book. It's the book. So when we picture the scroll in the hand, there's, there's a lot of ways we can tend to see it. And the word doesn't necessarily help us. It could be everything from a rolled up scroll, right, on, on two posts rolled together, or rolled up in, on one. What we know about this scroll is it's in the hand of God, right? It's in the hand of God. And when we look at this phrase, this scroll that's in the hand of God, immediately it takes me uh, to Daniel, like I just uh, uh, shared with you. And there's a reason. You see, in, in Roman law... When there was a testament, a will, it was traditional for that testament to be sealed up with seven seals. Now, we, we remember when we come to the book of Revelation, who wrote Revelation? 
John wrote Revelation. Is he writing during the time of Rome? Yep, he's writing during the time of Rome. So the Roman ideals and the way Rome did things wouldn't have been weird for John. That would have been the way he understood it. Nor would it be weird for him to understand things in a Jewish mindset. So it's hard for us to say definitively, but we've heard of these things before. And we've heard of it in the scripture, in the Old Testament. Daniel 12, 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. What's going to mark the time of the end? Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, maybe you've heard people say, well, that means that in those days, in the time of the end, people will be able to travel really easy. Well, that's, that's cool, I guess. But whenever I come to interpret Scripture, I want to interpret it with Scripture. And some of the footnotes in your Bible should take you to the book of Amos. And the book of Amos says that in those days... Men will run to and fro for a word from the Lord. But there will be a famine in those days, a famine of the word. The idea of running to and fro carries with it the idea of, of people not really hearing from God anymore. Not really experiencing the word from the prophets or the word from the seers. God missing out on on some of these things. So, look, I want to I want to take you to Isaiah 29 just to kind of try to paint this picture for you. In Isaiah chapter 29 verse 9 to 12, it says this. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk but not with wine, stagger but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes the prophets. And he has covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. So God describing through the prophet Isaiah a time where God would close their eyes and then he defines the eyes. He's going to close your eyes. That's your prophets. And he's going to cover the heads of your seers, those who are in leadership to provide guidance and wisdom to the nation. So what's happening to the nation is they're running to and fro. But they don't really have a purpose. They don't, haven't received the word from God, the direction from the Lord. So the book of Daniel, he says, this is going to be sealed. This idea, this judgment and the end of days, that, that's going to be sealed up until the time of the end. When people are running to and fro, they don't have a, a care or a concern or, or a worry about, uh, about what's happening with, uh, with uh, uh, God, what God is laying out, what God is telling them. And then it says, it goes on in Isaiah 29, verse 11, to say then, uh, when men give it, this book, to one to read, and say, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. What's the point? They're, when God seals a book, it's sealed until who opens it? When God blinds eyes, they're blinded for how long? God stops up ears. How long are they stopped up? Right? So when we see the one sitting on the throne, he's holding the scroll... We, we're gonna, there's two ways to look at this scroll, okay? And I'm, I'm going to discuss both of them for, for just a few minutes. But one way to look at the scroll is the scroll as that, 
Last will and testament is God's final judgment. And what, what do we say about the nation of Israel today? They are what? Blind eyes, deaf ears, the veils over their face. All of those are terms that the scripture uses, right? That they can't see, that they can't hear until what happens? Until God opens the seals. What is the, what is the 70th week of Daniel for? What is the purpose of the 70th week of Daniel? To restore Israel. To bring Israel back. You have the destruction of people in the, to de- trying to destroy the nation. But God's attention is turned back once again to the nation of Israel. To finish the promise we read in Daniel chapter 9. Which stopped at the crucifixion of Christ. And we'll start again with the unveiling or the revealing of the Antichrist. And we've all heard that phrase before, Antichrist. Here's how we tend to look at Antichrist. We see it as the opposite of Jesus Christ, but that's not what the word means. It means in place of. When Jesus came, he came to his own and his own did not receive him, right? But the Bible speaks of another who will come. And him they will receive. The revealing of the pseudo-Christ, the in place of Christ. The one that they'll receive instead of Jesus as their Messiah. That's what kicks off the 70th week of Daniel. That's what kicks off this final period of time. And that's signified in a few moments, well, in a few moments, in a couple weeks when we get to Revelation chapter 6, when Jesus begins to open the seals, right? Right? For, wait, what do we have? We have seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, all judgments of God poured out on a Christ-rejecting world to establish once again and fulfill the promises that he gives to them. So that's one way to look at it, okay? That scroll sealed, Jesus is going to open it. But there's another scripture that gives us another clue, and both are possibilities. The other takes us to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 32, Jeremiah, the children of Israel are going into captivity, and God tells Jeremiah to go buy a piece of property. He wants them to go buy the piece of property because he's telling, giving an illustration to the children of Israel, hey, the day will come when you're going to buy and sell land here. You're not gone for good. They're going into the Babylonian captivity, but God's going to bring them out. It says in Jeremiah 32, verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Now just pause there for a minute. What does that mean? It means that his relative had lost the ability to keep up with the payments on the land. And it's going into foreclosure. And in their economy... The one who could bail them out was family. You would go to family, and family could meet the requirement for you so that you didn't lose the land. The land would transfer, the deed would transfer to the one who redeemed it for you. And later on, down the line, this way a family never lost the family farm. You guys have heard of that before, right? Where, where people have had a farm for a hundred years or more, their family has farmed it, and then they run into some hard times and they lose it all. Well, in Israel, you couldn't do that. 
Because if you got into tough times, it was family that bailed you out, held the title deed to your land. Until times got better, you could make the payment and the land came back to you. But either way, the land remained under family control. You with me? That's, that's how it functioned. That's how they worked those things out. So God's telling Jeremiah, go buy this property. The people are all going into captivity. The nation of Israel is being destroyed. Who wants to buy anything then? But God says, go buy it. I want you to go buy it. And then it's described for us. It says, so, uh, Hanamel, my, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard. Jeremiah's in prison, so he's buying this land from the court of the guard in prison. In accordance with the word of the Lord, he said to me, Buy my field that is in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. So buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin. I weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed and I sealed it. I got witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. And I took the sealed deed. I sealed it. Um, I took the deed, the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and the conditions and the open copy. There was a copy that he kept that wasn't sealed. The sealed copy got put away. The open copy was his receipt. You guys tracking with me? So the open copy is like his receipt. He said, I, I took both. I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. And I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed and the open deed, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields, vineyards, shall again be bought in this land. Now, it's an interesting story in the book of Jeremiah, but what we want to take from it is what's going on here. What's going on here is someone lost through default the right to ownership of their land, and it was redeemed by someone within the family. What they would do when they were in default is they would write on the opposite side of the title deed what was required in order to redeem the deed. For example, you need to pay in full whatever the amount was. That would be written on the back. The witnesses witnessing it would sign it, and then they would put a seal for each one of the witnesses down the side of the title deed, and they would set it aside. And if somewhere down the line, someone from the family came who could redeem it, they would open it up, Pop the seals, pay the purchase price, and redeem the property. What makes that interesting when we consider that is some people see this scroll in the hand of God as the title deed to the planet Earth, which was given to mankind. But mankind defaulted in sin. They fell, right? And there's a written requirement against the redemption of the land. The land entered into a period of curse. So a price has to be paid to redeem the property back to the rightful owner. So here's this title deed, possibly in the hands of God. Could be either one of those views, those ideas of of what the scroll is that he's holding. But what we do know from the text 
It's in His right hand. The right hand is the hand of authority. Sovereign control of power. So this is the requirement. This is the requirement. You had to fulfill the requirement either way to open the book. To open the scroll. To be able to to get into what's going on. So what's the problem? Here's the problem. Look at verse 2. The problem is I saw a mighty angel proclaiming. That word is the word, same word for preach. Caruso. It is a herald. He's heralding. He's saying with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who's worthy? Because remember, in the story of Jeremiah, who had to be, who did it have to be? Somebody in the family, right? Had to be a family member to open the scroll if it's a title deed. That is interesting since in order for Jesus to redeem uh, a, a, an issue between God and man, he has to be able to do what? Put his hand in both. He has to be the Son of God and the Son of Man. Interesting that those are two titles that are utilized with Jesus Christ, right? Having the right to redeem. So the requirements the same. Someone had to meet the requirements to open the seals. To, to open up the book. To, to let this final purpose and plan, the judgment of God be poured out to be finished to be finished so he said he looked and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it so they begin a search right they begin a search okay we're going to find someone so they look around for for uh, a man in heaven no man in heaven they look around for a man on earth there's no man on earth they look under the earth what does that mean so they're looking in the land of the dead. You take it any way you want. They're, they're looking through the demonic host. They're looking at those who have died. But it all comes up exactly the same. The, the, the story is building for purpose. The building, there's this tension of who's going to be able to open the scroll. Who's going to be able to begin this plan. And what happens in verse 4, it says, And I began to weep loudly. So John falls apart. And the word here for weep is not just like, oh, I just kind of lost it for a minute. No, there, this was a kind of a drawn out period of time. He's weeping over this inability to open the scroll. Now, some people might say, well, what's the big deal? So I just want to read this quote to you. I, I, I felt like it really kind of encapsulated what's going on uh, with John. Say, these are not the tears of the prophet thwarted in his expectation of seeing into the future his frustration goes deeper than that until the scroll is open god's purposes remain not merely unknown but unaccomplished john has been brought up on a messianic hope of the old testament which promised one day god would assume kingly power and reign openly on the earth that he would punish the wicked and redress the wrongs of the, the oppressed, especially in persecution of God's people, that they had longed for that day to bring an end to their sufferings, but also to vindicate their faith. For there is a limit to the capacity of faith to survive in the face of hostile fact. Unless in the end right obviously triumphs over wrong, 
Faith in a just God is just an illusion. God must vindicate his chosen who cry out to him day and night. So John weeps with disappointment because the hope of God's actions appears to be indefinitely postponed. Nobody's here to get this thing going. I thought this was the end. This is it. It was all going to be wrapped up. Uh, If we're honest, aren't there times where we would like to see everything just wrapped up? I know there have been days for me. Man, put down evil, lift up righteousness, let the king come and, and take his rightful place upon the throne. No one in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth was found. Now this is not uncommon phrasing in the Old Testament. We see it in the Old Testament a couple of places. In Isaiah 59, 16, it says, He saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. So his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. What's God saying? God said, I looked for a man to stand in the gap. Well, there wasn't one. So what did God do? I became the man to stand in the gap. The emphasis is on the reality that there's no one, no man, mankind is not able to save themselves in direct uh, contradistinction to the, the, um, the humanist movement which said, there is no God, we must save ourselves. God is saying in this phrase, you can't save yourself. There is no one on earth, on heaven, or under the earth, living in heaven or in the grave, who can save you. There is no one who's able. In Isaiah 63, verse 3, he says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. There's nobody else with Jesus. No one was with me. I trod them in my anger, trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained my apparel. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and... My year of redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. There's nobody else who can open the scroll. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. My wrath upheld me. The question that's being emphasized, verses 2 through 4, is who is worthy to open the scroll? To take the scroll from the hand of God, redeem it, and, and begin this final outcome the final the the, this final week the 70th week of daniel who is worthy to 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 bring that redemption so it says in verse five and one of the elders said to me weep no more behold the lion of the tribe of judah i love that phrase weep no more behold look the lion of the tribe of judah Now, who's he talking about? Yeah, we don't have no doubts, right? We don't have no doubts. John is weeping. There's no one among mankind who can can usher in this redemption. You're right. There's no one among mankind. That's why God became man. So that he could place his hand in the hand of the Father and his hand in the hand of mankind, bridge the gap, redeem that which has been lost finish 
his purpose on earth. Jesus, the Christ, is the one who is able to do these things. And one of the elders said to me. Now, I also want to remind you, we're, we're, we're bringing up more next week when we do the second half of chapter 5. Who wrote the book of Revelation? John. John. And in John's writings, when he used the term elder, what did it refer to? Referred to an elder. Funny thing. Right? When 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, when we look at the book of Revelation, when John was, was going, traveling to Ephesus, visiting churches, if John came in and said, now, I've wrote, written this to you elders, who's he talking to? The elders in the church. The term elder, as written by John... In 95 AD, when the book of Revelation was written, would have been understood by the audience to refer to the church, which has been absent since the beginning of chapter 4. We talk about the idea that 24 is a representative number. It doesn't mean a complete number. It's, it's a number used throughout the Old Testament and the New to refer to a greater group. When the Bible discussed the 12, we all know that as the what? 12 what? Disciples. 12 disciples. How many disciples were there? Are you sure? Oh, there was 120 sometimes. There was a few times. There were more than 500 that Jesus appeared to. But oftentimes it's referred to as the 12. Why? Because when I say the 12, you know what I'm talking about. The disciples. Followers of Jesus. Yeah? There's 12 tribes of Israel, right? How many tribes of Israel are there? Yep, they're always listed as 12 of them in there. But how many are there really? Is there only 12? Well, Joseph's tribe got divided into two, right? Ephraim and Manasseh. So Joseph got divided into two. And if there were 12 before that, what is there now? But what are they always called? 12. Why? Because you know what, they, what he's talking about. You know the 12 tribes. And he always lists only 12. <laughs> Somebody's always in trouble. If you had 12 kids, if you had 13 kids, I can promise you one of the 13 is in trouble every day. Right or wrong? I got three kids and one of them is in trouble every day. So I'm pretty sure if I had 13, I could always find the list of the 12 that were doing okay and the one that needed extra help. Yeah? So we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week, but I just want you to understand, at the time, 95 AD, the term elder would have a very specific connotation. If you were reading this in the first century AD, was the church is blossoming and taking off and blowing up, going all over, and in fact they said that these 12 did what? They turned the world upside down. The doctrine was everywhere. Paul telling Titus and Timothy in the 50s, go out and appoint elders in every city. So when the term elder was used in 95 AD, it would have had with it the connotation of the church. We'll, we'll bridge that a little bit more next week when we look at the Song of the Redeemed. So well, who is this? Who is it that is worthy? He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. What does it mean to be the Lion? Man, that, that's... Does that say something different than the lamb? Right? 
It's a, it's a little bit of a different descriptive phrase. There's three specific things I think the scripture tells us about the lion. The, the way it's used. It's used as a destructive force. To be, to be uh, destroyed like a, by, as though by a lion. It's used to speak of strength. Like the lion. It's used to speak of boldness. Let's look at them. In Hosea 5.14. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim. Like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one will rescue. You get the idea, right? I'm going to be like a lion attacking somebody. That's, that's a bad day. Huh? Carries with it the idea of destruction. What about Ju- uh, Judges 14.18? And the men of the city said to him, <clears throat> On the seventh day, before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? So he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. It's a riddle that Samson gave, and the guys finding out what that riddle was. What was the point of the lion? Strength. The lion spoke of strength. He's talking about, he specifically says, the strength of the lion. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And then in Proverbs 28.1, The wicked flee when no one pursues. But the righteous are as bold as the lion. So it speaks of boldness. It speaks of strength. It speaks of destruction. Jesus came as a lamb once. He's coming as the lion next. What, how would we describe the 70th week of Daniel? Is there destruction there? Does it reveal the strength of God? The boldness of God? Yeah, these are, these are accurate terms. But not only is he the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is also what? It says the root of David, right? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. What is that? That's an interesting thing because he's called both the root and the branch. The root is the cause. Who gave David life in the first place? God did. How could you be both a root and a branch? How could you come from the line of David and be the cause of the line of David? Only one way. That you're God. God has the ability to be the one for whom or through whom the line of David sprang forth. And as God, he was able to come as a branch in the, in the line, being a part of the line of David. Listen to what God promised David in Psalm 132 verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not uh, turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on the throne. There will be a king, one of the sons of David, to sit on the throne forever. There's going to be one. There's going to be. Now, you have a hard time finding somebody from a line of David today. If Jesus wasn't the Messiah, you've got a problem you got a problem establishing that Davidic kingly line. You see, when the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., so were all of the, um, the, the birth records. They all went too. All the genealogies <coughs> went at that time. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 9, we're going to be talking about this Christmas season, right? For unto us a child is born, emphasizing humanity. Unto us a son is given. 
emphasizing deity. Unto us a child is born. That's natural, right? Unto us a son is given. For God so loved the world that he gave his monogamous. He gave his one and only son. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. His name will be called Mighty God. His name will be called Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David... And over his kingdom, he will reign. Jesus Christ as that king that sits on the throne. He has to be of the, of the line of David. But he is at the same time the root. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot out of the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom, understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. There will come one who is both the root and the branch. Speaking of the son of David, the Messiah, and pointing the way to Jesus Christ. In Zechariah 3.8 it says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant... The Nazaret. I will bring my servant, the Nazaret. That's how you say it in Hebrew. That sound like anything else? Where's the town Jesus grew up in? Oh, interesting. You know what Nazareth means? Branch. Nazaret. The branch. Seems like a good place for the Messiah to grow up, doesn't it? When Jesus went into the synagogue in Nazareth and he read, he opened up the scroll to Isaiah 61 and he reads Isaiah 61 to him. He doesn't finish the whole section. He stops in the middle of a sentence. He closes the scroll and says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. What was he saying? I'm the Messiah. And what did they try to do? Throw him off a cliff. Throw him off a cliff. The branch... The root, the lion of David. How else is he described? He says, not only is it, he says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then it says, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, how? As though it had been slain. The lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David, the Lamb of God. And not just the Lamb, what does He look like? It has been said there's only one man-made thing in heaven. What is it? The scars on Jesus Christ. How did John see Him in heaven? The Lamb as though He had been slain. He still bears the wounds, the marks. When John looked at him, literally that word slain is a word slaughtered. He looks at him as the lamb as though it had been slaughtered. Looked like Jesus having just been taken from the cross. Standing victorious before the throne in the midst of all the elders and the four living creatures and in the throne. There in the middle of it all, central to everything, stands the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
the root of David, the lamb that had been slain. Jesus Christ. 186 times the Bible refers to the Lamb of God. Think it's important? 186 times. John 129 says, The next day, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, what? The Lamb of God that does what? Takes away the sin of the world. John 1.36, He looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Look, the Lamb of God. 1 Peter 1.19 says, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He is central. Standing in the midst of it all, around him is the four living creatures, the throne of God, the elders are all around him, right? In the midst of it all stands a lamb as though he had been slain. And what is he doing? There's two things specifically. He's standing. Now before when we saw him, he was doing what? Sitting. He was sitting. The Bible says he was sitting at the throne of God and that he ever lives to make intercession for us. What it means now is he's standing. The time of intercession is over. It's a time of intervention. It's a time of action. Jesus is standing, taking that scroll within his hands. He is also, not only is he standing, but he looks like the one who had been slain. Looked like the one who had been slain. And then finally... We see his control, the fact that he is in control. What does it say? As though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. Now remember I told you when we go through the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is signified. It's signified. It means he uses and speaks in terms of signs so that throughout the ages, as language changes, we can understand what he's talking about. When we look at the phrase horns, we've looked at it through the book of Daniel. We're going to look at it multiple times working our way through the book of Revelation. It's all over the Old Testament. The horn is the power. Seven is the number of completion, right? Perfection. So he has seven horns. He has complete power. He has seven eyes. Eyes speak of wisdom and knowledge throughout the Old Testament. When it talks about the four living creatures, it says, they are full of eyes without and within. What's the point? They're full of wisdom and knowledge. He has seven. Seven. What does seven mean? Complete or perfect. He has perfect knowledge and wisdom. Complete and perfect power. And he lays hold of the scroll. It says, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Jesus Christ is able to open the seals, to usher in the 70th week of Daniel, to bring the final point of prophecy, to bring in the final judgment, the restitution of all things. What is it that Jesus is going to declare at the end of the book of Revelation? He's going to declare, See, I make all things new. I don't know about you, but I look forward to that day. See, I make all all wrongs get put right. Everything is going to be redeemed. Because Jesus Christ 
is worthy to open the seals. So when we look at the seals, next week we're going to look at the Song of the Redeemed, who the 24 elders are, what's happening in this second half of this scene at the throne of God. But the week following, that's not Christmas, is it? If it is, it'll be the week after that. (laughs) But the, the week following, what do we got? The opening of the seals. Jesus opens the seals, right? One at a time. Now, if you think of it, as a scroll, and the scroll would be cut, not straight like a piece of paper is for us, but at an angle. It's cut at an angle. What does that mean? That means when I pop the first seal, I can open some of it. Then I get to the next seal, and I pop that, and I can open some more. And I get to the third seal, and I pop that, and I can open it more. So when we get to the seven seals being opened... Keep in mind, each one is opened and part of the scroll is revealed. And that's what we're reading in the book of Revelation. That's what we're seeing. Those judgments, those things that take place. Seven seals, which include seven trumpet judgments and seven bowl judgments. All a part of that seventh and final seal, which opens the fullness of the scroll to be revealed for us. So as Jesus is opening those seals, that's what we're going to be reading about from chapter 6 through 19. Each of those seals and then referring to to what that has loosed on the earth. As God does what? Works out his ultimate redemptive purpose, bringing the nation of Israel through the promise that he gave them. Jesus has to sit on a throne as king on earth. The throne of David. It's going to happen. The Bible tells in Zechariah, two-thirds of the nation of Israel is going to die in the process. That's a lot of pain and heartache, right? But there's a whole lot of people on the earth going to die too, isn't there? As men in the sixth seal hide in the rocks, lift their eyes to heaven and cry out, Save us from the wrath of the Lamb. Because Jesus Christ is coming. And he's going to set it all right. And that day is a bloody day. That time is a bloody time. Hard, difficult, incredible, beyond even I think our, really our, the ability of our minds to totally comprehend. It was not all that long ago I was watching, well it's been a few years, but I'm watching the news about a tidal wave. You guys remember that in Indonesia? Do you remember how many died in that one disaster? The numbers blew my mind. Right? It's crazy. That looks small in comparison to the wrath of God. The wrath of God, judgment day will come. It's guaranteed. It's set. But it's not here today. What does that mean for you and I? There's still time, right? There's still time to share. Nobody has to go through that time. And trust me, anybody who does ain't going to want it. Far better for, for us to go, like Jesus said, right? Go into all the world. Make disciples of all men, every nation. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them the things 
that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you. How long? Even until the end of the age. So we'll take a look. Next week at the Song of the Redeemed, second half of chapter 5, and the week after that, we start the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the time, this opportunity that we have to come before you, Lord, to, to look to you, God, as, as you reveal to us, as you open, as you open the scroll and you let us look into the events that are going to take place at the time of the end. God, I pray, Lord, that, that it would be that which propels us to say, you know what, I, I don't want anybody I know to come to that time without knowing you without having heard the gospel the good news lord i pray that that would be our heart but i pray that we would also see that god is faithful and true if he says he will do it he will do it if he says a son will be or a child will be born a son will be given that's what he's going to do he will fulfill his word and his promise to the entire world lord i pray god that we would utilize the time we have to share the truth of Jesus Christ with a world so desperately in need of finding the solutions to the struggles of life in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray you be glorified and magnified in this place before we honor you and we glorify you, God. And I pray you would challenge us to know and understand you more. We lift this time to you and we ask your blessing in and through it all, in Jesus' name. Amen.